birthday time here on Iris on this Halloween of 2023. We have one birthday we're celebrating today, John R. Anderson of Boone. So very happy Halloween, John, as well as a very happy birthday. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television, on Iowa PBS, and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Before we get to obituaries, I want to again read this announcement about the IRIS schedule, particularly the newspapers that we read. Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you'll hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, followed by the Dubuque Telegraph Herald at 2. At 3 o'clock comes the Cedar Rapids Gazette, followed by the Sioux City Journal at 4 p.m. At 5 o'clock, the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the Reed Broadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear the Midwest Midweek Shopping Cart at 9 o'clock. It's uh, Time Magazine, 10 p.m., the Wall Street Journal. And we wrap things up with the New York Times at 11 o'clock. And now time for the obituaries, and here's Deanna. Thank you, Pat. All right, Twyla B. Sharpnack of Rochester, Minnesota, age 101, passed away on September 28th at the homestead of Rochester with her family at her side. Twyla B. Miller Sharpnack was born on September 21, 1922, to her parents, Franklin and Catherine Swallow Miller, in Cumming, Iowa. For the first 12 years of her life, she greatly enjoyed living in the family farm, where she had a horse named Dynamite and a dog named Felix. They later moved to Des Moines, where she attended Valley High School and began her career as a bookkeeper with the United States Department of Agriculture. In 1940, Twyla married the love of her life, Richard Sharpnack. Richard served in the United States Army during World War II and was originally stationed in Alabama. Twyla moved to Alabama to be by his side and moved back to Des Moines when he was deployed. After settling back into their home, the couple had two children, Deborah and Richard. Twyla spent nearly 70 years in their home before moving to Rochester, Minnesota, six years ago to be closer to family. While in Rochester, she lived at the Waters on Mailwood, followed by the homestead of Rochester. Twyla was very active in community efforts and loved being involved in her neighborhood organizations. She spent a lot of time volunteering in her children's school and even served as president of the PTA. She also volunteered at the Iowa Methodist Hospital for over 20 years. Twyla and Dick were members of both the Des Moines Club and the Des Moines Golf and Country Club for over 40 years. Twyla supported Dick through his political career as he served as councilman and later as mayor of West Des Moines for 10 years. Twyla's hobbies included spending time with her grandchildren, gardening, hiking in the mountains, canoeing, needlepoint, and golfing with her family. She remained active her entire life with her last hike at Estes Park at age 89. Estes Park, as well as Wyoming, were two of her favorite annual trips. Twyla is survived by her daughter, Dr. Deborah Wallstrom of Rochester, Minnesota, her son, Richard, married to Elsa Peters of Denver, Colorado, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A memory memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. at McLaren's Rest Haven Funeral Home, 801 19th Street in West Des Moines, on November 4th. Interment will be at Rest Haven Cemetery Columbarium. 
in lieu of flowers, donations are preferred to Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines or a charity of your choice. Donna K. Tort of Jefferson, the daughter of Myron and Marjorie Ayers Gilly, was born December 5, 1940, in Bagley, Iowa, and she passed from this life surrounded by her loving family on October 28th. She lived a full and active life to the age of 82. A celebration of Donna's life will be held October 31st at Salem United Methodist Church with Reverend David Arulathan officiating. Burial will be in the Patton Township Cemetery. For full obituary, go to sliningerschroeder.com. James Greenhorn, age 89, of Urbandale, passed away at Bishop Drum in Johnston on Saturday, October 28th. A celebration of Jim's amazing life will be held on Thursday, November 2nd at 2 p.m. at the Merle Hay Chapel, 4400 Merle Hay Road in Des Moines, with visitation from noon until the service time. There will also be a Masonic service following the celebration of life. Jim loved his family immensely and is survived by his wife of 71 years, Sherry. Hardworking sons, Michael, married to Sid, and Stephen, married to Susan, and his wonderful daughter, Tony, married to Eric Swee, along with five beautiful granddaughters, an amazing grandson, and some great-grandchildren. He was looking forward to being a great-grandfather again in the coming months. Memorial contributions may be directed to Shriners Children's Hospital via Zagazig Center. The family would like to thank the staff at Bishop Drum for their amazing care, Full obituary and a link to the live stream can be found at MerleHayFuneralHome.com website. Janet Carol Dutcher of Urbandale, age, age 69, passed away on the 26th at Taylor House Hospice in Des Moines after a battle with ALS. Janet was born March 23, 1954 in Des Moines to Herb and Ruth Dutcher. She graduated from Indianola High School in 1972 and then later graduating from Drake University with a bachelor's degree in music education. Janet and Alan Fuller were married on December 30, 1978. They had two children, Douglas and Elizabeth. Janet enjoyed a wide variety of interests. She had a passion for music and played several instruments over the years, predominantly piano and French horn. Janet enjoyed quilting, researching, genealogy, reading, and traveling. She is survived by her husband, Alan, her son, Doug, married to Marie, daughter, Elizabeth, married to Austin Carnes, and grandchildren. Okay, family wishes to thank Dr. Andrea Swenson of the Iowa Neurology Team, the ALS Society of Iowa, and the staff at Taylor House. Memorial services will be held December 2nd. Donations can be made in her honor at St. James Lutheran Church in Johnson or to the ALS Society of Iowa or the Children's Cancer Connection of Johnson. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. And continuing with obituaries, Lila Jean Hutt passed away on October 27th in Surprise, Arizona. She was born on April 1st to Carol and Lila Bassett in Des Moines. She was preceded in death by brothers Don Bassett, C. Russell, C. Ralph Bassett, and James Dooling. Lila is survived by her husband of 70 years, Wayne Hutt, her children, Jamie, married to David McAllister, Beth, married to Ray, and their name is Keith, 
uh, John, married to Sharon, had an eight grandchildren and one great-granddaughter. Lila is a graduate of East High School, and when raising her children, she was active and supportive of all their extracurricular activities. She served on the local PTA and worked in the school lunch program. She greatly enjoyed her employment at Norwest Bank and International Travel Associates. She was an avid golfer. She had two lifetime holes of one and a longtime member of the Urbandale Golf and Country Club. When she wasn't on the golf course, she enjoyed traveling throughout the United States and abroad. She derived pleasure in shopping, cheering on her favorite sports teams, and staying up on the latest technology. She loved watching her children and grandchildren participate in all their activities and never missed the opportunity to celebrate their personal achievements. Wayne and Lila celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary in March and had a family celebration this summer in Des Moines. Lila's smile, positivity, and love will be missed by all who knew her. A private burial will take place at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery in Adel. John Lee Morano, age 78 of Grimes, passed away on October 27th after battling many illnesses. John was born on January 13, 1945, to Rose and John S. Morano in Des Moines. John graduated from North High in Des Moines, where he met the love of his life, Billy. They married on July 31, 1965. Shortly after that, their daughter, Lisa Marie, was born followed by the birth of their son Christopher, also known as C.J. John then became a doting grandfather of six grandchildren and one great-granddaughter who affectionately called him Pops. After graduating, he started his career at Farm Bureau as an underwriter. He then became a banker with Banker Trust and then in the sales with Bell and Howell. He retired and spent his time attending his grandkids' activities, including soccer, dance, volleyball, wrestling, track, football, basketball, baseball, and cross-country. John was predeceased by his father, John S. Morano, his mother, Rose, and wife, Billy. He is survived by his brother, Frank, who's married to Loretta, his children, Lisa, married to Mark, Trom, and CJ, married to Denise, and six uh, grandchildren, Danny, Trevor, Bryce, Jenny, Caitlin, and Brooks, and a great-granddaughter, Brevlin. Visitation will be held at 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. Friday, November 3rd at St. Teresa Catholic Church. That's at 1230 Merle Hay Road in Des Moines. The Mass of Christian Burial for John will be at 11 a.m. on Friday, November 3rd at St. Teresa Catholic Church with Father Raphael Osma as a celebrant and a celebration of life luncheon from noon to 2 p.m., followed by a private family graveside burial. Services are under the direction and care of Caldwell Parish Funeral Home. Our final obituary today is Richard James Murphy, age 87, of Altoona. He passed away on Saturday, October 28th. He was born on January 15, 1936, in Davenport, Iowa, to Joseph and Mary Monier Murphy. Richard married Margaret Onus on June 16th at the Basilica of St. John in Des Moines. A Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10 a.m. on Friday, November 3rd at Saints John and Paul Church. That's located at 1401 First Avenue South in Altoona. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday at the church with the vigil service at 7 p.m. Burial will follow services at Glendale Cemetery in Des Moines. 
for those unable to attend the Mass of Christian uh, Burial will be live-streamed and available for viewing at the Hamilton Funeral Homes website. Memorials may be directed to Intervisions Healthcare and the Church. Condolences may be expressed at the Hamilton Funeral Home website. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, from page uh, two of the main section, Netanyahu vows no ceasefire against Hamas. Israeli forces rescue a hostage in Gaza. This is from John Bacon and George Ortiz. Israel's ground invasion of the Gaza Strip intensified Monday amid pockets of resistance from Palestinians who refused repeated Israeli orders to evacuate. Fierce clashes took place as Israeli forces penetrated deep into northern Gaza near Beit Lahia, a city of 90,000, the Palestinian media outlet Al Ayam reported. The Israeli military said its forces were pushing into the territory, encountering militants attempting to launch anti-tank missiles and mortar shells. Dozens of the militants were killed, said the Israelis. The objectives of this war require a ground operation, the Israeli military chief of staff, Hersi Halevi, says. The best soldiers are now operating in Gaza. The death toll among Palestinians passed 8,000, mostly women and minors, the Gaza Health Ministry said. More than 1,400 Israelis have died, most in the first few hours of the October 17th attack on border communities by Hamas militants. At least 32 of the dead are Americans, according to the U.S. State Department. The number of Israelis who have evacuated homes and communities near the Gaza border has surpassed 250,000, said Israeli officials. In a Sunday morning call, President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu discussed Israel's right to defend itself and the need to do so while protecting civilians in Gaza, according to a readout. They also talked about the efforts to locate hostages and gain their release, the White House said. Hamas and other militants are believed to be holding about 220 captives, Americans among them, most likely in different locations. The leaders also covered the topic of aid coming into Gaza, which Biden has said is not happening as much as he'd like. The president underscored the need to immediately and significantly increase the flow of humanitarian assistance to meet the needs of civilians in Gaza, the readout said. The UN Security Council scheduled an emergency meeting Monday at the request of the United Arab Emirates to discuss the humanitarian plight of Palestinians. Although almost one million have heeded warnings from Israel and fled northern Gaza, hundreds of thousands remain, many refusing to leave and others unable to. The UN warned that Israeli airstrikes in northern Gaza were hitting close to hospitals where more than 100,000 displaced people are staying, amid thousands of patients and staff, all hoping the hospitals will be safe from the airstrikes. The Vatican on Monday called for a two-state solution to the Palestinian homeland issue and urged both sides to avoid escalating the war. Archbishop Paul Richard Gallagher, the Vatican's Secretary for Relations with States, told Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullayan that the Pope had serious concern about the war. Iran had requested the phone conversation, said the Vatican. Archbishop Gallagher expressed the Holy See's serious concern about what is happening in Israel and Palestine, reiterating the absolute necessity to avoid escalating the conflict 
and to achieve a two-state solution for a stable and lasting peace in the Middle East, said the Vatican. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov on Monday blamed outside interference and external information for the upheaval at Russia's airport in the predominantly Muslim region of Dagestan. Russian news reports said protesters shouted anti-Semitic slogans and tried to storm the plane belonging to Russian carrier Red Wings, prompting police in Makachala to close the airport. Video on social media showed protesters attempting to overturn a police car, some on the landing field waving Palestinian flags, and others checking the passports of passengers who had arrived there from Tel Aviv. More than 20 people were injured, too critically, said Dagestan's health ministry. The injured included police officers and civilians. At least 60 people were detained in the unrest, the local interior ministry said. It was not clear if charges were filed against any of them. But Russia's investigative committee said it opened a criminal probe on charges of organizing mass unrest. Peskov said TV footage showing Israel's bombing of Gaza and the deaths of civilians, children, elderly people, and medics made it very easy for the ill-wishers to take advantage of the situation for provocations and instigation, said Russian state media outlet TASS. Russian President Vladimir Putin called a meeting of his top security and law enforcement officials on Monday to discuss attempts by the West to use the events in the Middle East to divide the Russian society, said Peskov. Netanyahu's office said in a statement that Israel expects the Russian law enforcement authorities to protect the safety of all Israeli citizens and Jews, wherever they may be, and to act resolutely against the rioters and against the wild incitement directed against Jews and Israelis. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, whose country has been fighting a Russian invasion since February of 2022, tweeted that anti-Semitic sentiment is common in Russia and emanates from its leaders. Zelensky said this is not an isolated incident, but rather part of Russia's widespread culture of hatred toward other nations, which is propagated by state television, pundits, and authorities. In the U.S., campus police were sent to Cornell University's Center for Jewish Living after horrendous anti-Semitic messages threatening violence appeared on a discussion board Sunday, said University President Martha Polak. The The University Police Department is investigating and has notified the FBI of a potential hate crime, she said. Polak urged the campus community to work together to reinforce a culture of trust, respect, and safety at the Ivy League School in Ithaca, New York, more than 200 miles northwest of New York City. We will not tolerate anti-Semitism at Cornell, Pollock said. The, the virulence and destructiveness of anti-Semitism is real and deeply impacting our Jewish students, our faculty and staff, as well as the entire Cornell community. Pat. All right, thank you, Dan. And we'll now move to USA Today's 50 states. Uh, We'll start with uh, Alabama, of course, alphabetically our first. From Tuscaloosa, the State Department of Tourism, lawmakers, and other groups are working to bring awareness and tourism dollars to communities along one of the state's first roadways. Byler Road is as old as Alabama itself, authorized by state lawmakers in 1819 and built between 1820 and 1823 to bring settlers to the western part of the state. 
The road began on the Tennessee River in Lauderdale County and ran southward to the Black Warner River, ending what is now the city of Northport. The state's tourism director said he believes the project is going to have long-term positive consequences. From Anchorage in Alaska, as Filipino American History Month closes, the Anchorage Museum is celebrating the history of Filipinos in the state with an exhibit. Alaska Public Media reports, and it's called MANA, The History We Inherit and Tells the Story Through Oral Histories. From Tucson, a man who the FBI says made mass shooting threats on social media targets at the University of Arizona has been arrested. In a criminal complaint, an FBI official said the man was frustrated with his home life and decided to vent to the group chat with his friends on social media. From Little Rock, Arkansas, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is trying to move past questions over a $19,000 lectern. An audit is underway over the purchase of the lectern that's prompted claims her office illegally audited records about it. The lectern hasn't been seen at Sanders' events, and the governor's office won't say where it is. From Los Angeles, the city's police department says its YouTube account was suspended after posting video of an attack in an attempt to uh, get the public's help, and that appeal for reinstatement was denied. From Hudson, Colorado, pumpkin farmers in the state are feeling the pinching effects of drought. Farmers have had to rely on dwindling water for irrigation while battling weather to get crops planted on time. Some have cut back in other crops because pumpkins bring in the most money. From Hartford, Connecticut, while the state continues to slash billions of dollars off massive pension debt that dates back more than 80 years, a second benefit for state retirees isn't quite as steady as the state's health care program for retired state workers still shifts hundreds of millions of dollars in cost into the future. From Wilmington, Delaware, a North American Aerospace Defense Command fighter aircraft and a helicopter intercepted as an aircraft that violated restricted airspace over the city, according to NORAD. The restricted airspace was set in place because President Joe Biden was in Delaware. From our nation's capital, children are learning about and learning to love fruits and vegetables through Food Prints, a program educating roughly 7,000 kids at 21 of the city's public schools about food systems through hands-on activities like gardening and cooking. From Orlando, Disney says Walt Disney World's governing district, made up of Governor Ron DeSantis' appointees, is dragging its feet and providing requested documents to the company, a lawsuit over who has design and construction powers over Disney's theme park resort. From Atlanta, Georgia Power Company says increased demand for electricity is coming fast, asking regulators to let it secure more power generation ahead of schedule. But environmentalists are questioning a plan that mostly relies on natural gas to generate new electricity and could keep coal-fired plants running. From Honolulu, community volunteers, including the city's mayor, came together to clean up trash on the 11-mile Pearl Harbor bike path along the waterfront. From Idaho, American Falls, the one-stoplight farming community has embraced a goal that backers describe as progressive universal preschool. The town has seen improvements in preschool access and kindergarten readiness. From Round Lake Beach, Illinois, a man who allegedly attacked two relatives with a sledgehammer has been fatally shot by police after charging at officers. Officers said the armed suspect first was shot with a stun gun. 
From Indianapolis, police say a shooting at a house party has left one person dead and nine others injured. Officers who reported hearing gunshots arrived around midnight at the party and found a crowd leaving. And from here in Iowa, a story about former President Donald Trump headlining his eighth campaign event in the state in a little more than a month as part of his accelerated fall schedule leading up to the first of the nation caucuses in January. And Deanna, now we look to you to tell us what's going on in Kansas. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Out of Topeka, cats and coffee? Two budding entrepreneurs say that's the perfect combination. April Lang and Tony Fowler hope to bring the first cat cafe to the capital city. Fowler said the cafe would help control the city's cat population and overcrowding at shelters. <laughs> Out of Glendale, Kentucky, Ford Motor Company has delayed the start of production at one of its planned electric vehicle battery plants, Ford executives revealed in its third quarter. Two plants are a part of Blue Oval SK, a joint venture between Ford and Korean partner SK in Hardin County. Out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the state is closer to connecting its capital city to New Orleans via a revived train line. Governor John Bell Edwards signed an agreement advancing the return of passenger rail service between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, which stopped in 1969. Out of York, Maine, the York Sewer District has filed a lawsuit against several corporations that it alleges are, are responsible for PFAS, the PFAS pollution, in the town's wastewater treatment plant. The district announced its lawsuit against 3M Company, DuPont de Nemours Incorporated, and other manufacturers of PFAS. Out of, Sal out of Salisbury, Maryland, a man has been sentenced to 30 months in federal prison for his role in the theft of more than $1.8 million from Shore Appliance Connection. He also received an additional three years of supervised release and was ordered to pay restitution in the full amount of the victim's losses. Out of Worcester, Massachusetts, authorities say a university campus was locked down for seven hours after two people were shot in an altercation. The Worcester County District Attorney's Office said neither the victims who were hospitalized nor the assailants were students at Worcester State University. Out of Detroit, Michigan, a man will serve 15 months of probation after threatening to kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. The state attorney general's office says James Tepler was sentenced under a specialized mental health treatment court. From Bloomington, Minnesota, the locally based food delivery business, Yellow, is cutting 750 jobs nationwide and closing 90 delivery centers. The company will continue to serve 18 states with its iconic yellow trucks. Yellow, which is, mis which is spelled, not misspelled, Y-E-L-L-O-H, began in 1952 as Schwann's Home Delivery. Out of Jackson, Mississippi, most voters will have no choice this year when it comes to who represents them in the state's House and Senate, as the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats running for the legislature face no major party opposition in the November 7th election. Out of Troy, Missouri, a prosecutor has dropped and refiled the murder case against Pamela Hupp, a killing that inspired a TV miniseries. 
Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney Mike Wood charged Hupp with first-degree murder in 2021, accusing her of killing her friend, Betsy Faria. Out of Augusta, Montana, the general hunting season for deer and elk kicked off with more luck for hunters this last year, thanks to particularly warm and dry weather. Out of Omaha, the billionaire Haslam family says in a lawsuit that Warren Buffett and his Omaha-based company Berkshire Hathaway are trying to artificially depress the price the company is obligated to pay for the family's remaining 20% stake in the Pilot Travel Center's truck stop company. And out of Carson City, Nevada, systemic racism, lack of affordable housing, limited access to healthy food, and hard-to-get medical services are some of the biggest barriers for Nevadans to be healthy, according to a report released this month by the State Division of Public and Behavioral Health. I think I'll stop there, Matt. Okay, thank you, Deanna. Uh, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Pat Steele and Deanna Snyder. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now, we will take a short break to allow our next readers, Doug and Lisa, to get into place. Welcome back. Your new, your new readers are myself, Doug Kretzinger, and Lisa Horsch. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register in USA Today. Lisa. 
We'll start with the opinions. This is from the USA Today. Eric Zunkel, or Erica Zunkel and Nathaniel Berry write, Hundreds still serving unjust sentences. As advocates representing poor people convicted of federal crimes, the overwhelming majority of whom are black and brown men, we have seen the ease with, with which harsh mandatory minimum sentences have become part of our criminal system. For example, in 2008, at a federal courthouse in Fort Wayne, Indiana, our client, Dion Walker, received a mandatory life sentence for selling cocaine to a government informant. Because Walker had two prior convictions for nonviolent drug offenses, the judge had no choice but to sentence him to life in prison. Highly controversial, this three strikes law represents the darkest excesses of our tough on crime approach to federal drug offenses. Nonetheless, we also have seen modest re progress toward reform. In 2018, Congress passed the First Step Act, which modified drug laws such that if Walker were sentenced today, his mandatory minimum would be 15 years rather than life. As reforms often are, however, the First Step Act was imperfect. Congress did not make its changes retroactive, meaning Walker languishes in prison for a sentence Congress overwhelmingly recognized as unjustifiably long. Second chance for prisoners serving outdated sentences. On Wednesday, Another promising reform takes effect, providing hope that Walker and hundreds of others serving unjust and outdated sentences might receive a second chance at life outside of prison walls. Under new guidance from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, the agency responsible for setting federal sentencing policy, individuals like Walker can now ask judges to reduce their unusually long sentences. The underlying law legal basis is a law passed by Congress in 1984 and formerly known as compassionate release, that permits judges to reduce a sentence when an individual can show an extraordinary and compelling reason for doing so. The Sentencing Commission's common sense expansion of compassionate release makes us hopeful that our federal criminal system can carve out a little space for redemption, mercy, and a recognition that we don't always get it right the first time around. Unfortunately, even with the promise of and need for the Commission's new guidance, the future of compassionate release is uncertain. The Department of Justice has objected to the Commission's recognition that legal changes resulting in an unjust sentence can qualify as an extraordinary and compelling reason to justify relief. With the Sentencing Commission's new guidance soon to be in effect and binding on federal judges, the DOJ and Attorney General Merrick Garland must decide whether they will support the commission or if they will fight to keep people such as Walker behind bars. We urge Attorney General Garland to follow the commission's example and allow compassionate release to rekindle the light of redemption that has been almost extinguished from our federal prisons, as Commission Chair Judge Carlton W. Reeves explains when announcing the new sentencing guidelines. Supporting the Commission's expansion of compassionate release is particularly urgent as other mechanisms to review unjust federal sentences are increasingly unattainable. Congress abolished federal parole in 1984. The Supreme Court has narrowed post-conviction habeas corpus to near extinction, and presidents of both parties have failed to embrace their clemency power. 
Our system's obsession with sentence finality is overwhelming our duty to achieve justice. For the lucky ones who have been released early through compassionate release, success stories abound. For example, Bryant Brim, who was serving a mandatory life sentence for a drug offense that could not be imposed today, shared his story of redemption with the commission during a public hearing earlier this year. New guidelines are not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Compassionate release, increasingly the only realistic hope for release in individuals such as Bremen Walker, will, in, will create more success stories. The commission's unusually long sentences provision is good policy. For from a get-out-of-jail-free card, it, as some have suggested, it is instead a narrow recognition that a sentence imposed decades ago may, upon review today, be no longer necessary or may be longer than necessary. The provision applies in limited instances where, among other things, the person has served at least 10 years in prison and there is a gross disparity between their sentence and the one likely to be imposed today. Even then, an individual still must demonstrate that they will not pose a danger to the community and that their individualized circumstances weigh in favor of a sentence reduction. Walker, for example, has been in prison for nearly 20 years and has already overserved the 15-year mandatory minimum that would apply to him today. He is also not the same person as he was when he was arrested in 2005. He has an exemplary prison record, has a loving family, and several job opportunities waiting for him in his Indiana hometown. Walker is a victim of the worst excesses of our tough-on-crime obsession. We hope he can benefit from the Sentencing Commission's modest counterweight to that excess. Undoing the injustice and excessive harshness of our federal criminal system will be a long process. No single action will be enough. But giving Walker and other individuals incarcerated for sentences they could not receive today the chance at justice they deserve is a good start. We celebrate the Sentencing Commission for giving them that chance and urge the Department of Justice not to stand in the way when individuals like Walker take it. Erica Zunkel is a clinical professor at the University of Chicago Law School and teaches in the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Clinic in February. She testified before the U.S. Sentencing Commission about expanding compassionate release. And Nathan Berry is a third-year law student and a student attorney in the Criminal and Just Juvenile Justice Clinic. And this next opinion is written by Rex Hupke. It uh, uh, reads as, Ban robbing Californians of delicious additives. So California's liberal governor, Gavin Newsom, has enacted a law known as the Skittles Ban and it cruelly attacks the four thing all righteous Americans hold dear. Brominated vegetable oil, potassium bromate, propylparaben, and red dye three. The law will ban the sale, distribution, and production of these traditionally delicious food additives, which are used in thousands of products we eagerly put in our mouths. Newsom's attack on tastiness doesn't actually impact Skittles. Thank the rainbow! Exclamation point, he writes. Because brave candy advocates persuaded lawmakers to exclude titanium dioxide from the list of banned additives. Everyone knows it's the titanium dioxide that gives Skittles their flavorful pop. That's in parentheses. Nevertheless, the four unjustly targeted additives will require producers of certain food like 
comestibles to change recipes by 2027 if they want to sell their products in the most populated state in the country. What kind of newfangled com communism is this? And since when does a governor have the power to tell me when and where I can guzzle brominated vegetable oil? Well, here are a few of the endangered products. Peeps, Pez, Fruit by the Foot, Hostess Ding Dongs, Brock's Candy Corn, and Yoo-Hoo Strawberry Drink. And this is in caps. He writes, That's my food pyramid, you nanny state monster! Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation point. Like most sensible patriots, I start each day pounding five seasonally appropriate peeps and washing the marshmallow-like goop down with a bottle of strawberry Yoo-Hoo, the only beverage bold enough to look like milk while actually being water and high fructose corn syrup. It's delicious, nutritious-ish, and causes an insulin surge that keeps the walls of my arteries in a state of constant inflammation, or as I like to call it, readiness. But Newsom and his propylparaben police want to rob me of that breakfast tradition. Am I now supposed to start eating fruit not by the foot? Brian Roanholm, director of food policy at Consumer Reports, said in a statement about the new California law, We've known for years that the toxic chemicals banned under California's landmark new law pose serious risks to our health. By keeping these dangerous chemicals out of food sold in the state, this groundbreaking law will protect Californians and encourage manufacturers to make food safer for everyone. Well, uh, so what if red dye 3 has been found to cause cancer in animals? Well, la-di-da. I don't recall asking for government protection from chemicals I don't understand and didn't technically realize I'm eating. But if you think knowing that red dye 3 has been found to cause cancer in animals and has been banned from use in cosmetics for more than three decades would stop me from making my annual Thanksgiving candy corn casserole, think again. Look, California, if I'm hoovering uh, Pez into my pie hole and washing ding-dongs down with Yoo-Hoo, as is my God-given right as a corn syrup-based citizen of this world, I'm pretty much committed to a ride-or-die lifestyle. So you're going to have to pry the peeps and potassium bromate from my cold, dead, red-dye-3-stained hands, which, according to these actu actuarial tables, you should be able to do in about a month and a half uh, USA Today Thomas Rex Hupke on X, if you want to, formerly called Twitter. And that was that one. Lisa? <laughs> now we'll take a look at sports. Chad Lysakow writes, Brian Ferentz to be ousted as Iowa football's offensive coordinator. The University of Iowa has placed Brian Ferentz's future employment under a cloud for nearly nine months with performance objectives instituted in February by former athletics director Gary Barda for the Iowa Hawkeye football team's offensive coordinator to earn a new contract. Now, Ferentz's Iowa future has become clear. He will not be returning to the Hawkeyes in 2024. In a bombshell announcement Monday afternoon, Interim Athletics Director Beth Getz said she had informed the um, 
had, had informed Ference that he will not be with the program after the 2023 season. Here is Getz's full statement in which she consulted with University of Iowa President Barbara Wilson. Quote, anyone who loves Iowa football recognizes both the success and challenges that have brought attention to our program this season. Our struggles on offense, coupled with the offensive coordinator's contract, make this a unique situation. After conversations with head coach Kirk Ferentz, Coach Brian Ferentz and President Wilson, I informed Brian that our intention is for him to be with us through the bowl game, but this is his last season with the program. Making this known today is in the best interest of the program and its loyal fans. It provides clarity during this pivotal time in the schedule. It is not my practice to be involved in assistant coaching decisions and certainly not to make public such a change during a season. Our priority is to put all our student athletes in the best possible position to have both short-term and long-term success on and off the field. Our football team has a group of outstanding young men and talented athletes who at 6-2, that's their, their um, record, have a lot to play for. As a former athlete, I know every opportunity to put on the jersey is a cherished one. As Hawkeyes, let's continue to support all of our coaches, staff, student athletes in their pursuit of a Big Ten championship and bowl game victory, end quote. That will bring a somewhat unceremonious end to Ference's 12-year stint on Iowa's coaching staff. He was hired by his father as the Hawkeyes' offensive line coach in 2012 after four years with the New England Patriots, then ascended to offensive coordinator in 2017 after the retirement of Greg Davis. The Hawkeyes' offensive futility has been a national punchline for at least a year and has been magnified in recent months. The 6-2 record they've compiled has been in spite of an offense that ranked 133rd out of 133 uh, football teams at 232.4 yards per game. That number is so bad. Iowa would need to gain 471 yards this week versus Northwestern to surpass the 258.8 yards a game being generated by the nation's 132nd ranked offense of Eastern Michigan. Iowa also ranks 132nd in yards per play at 4.12, 131st in passing yards per game at 116.5 ahead of only two service academies, 133rd in completion percentage at 44.1%, 132nd in first down conversions at 26.4%, and 120th in scoring offense, 19.5 game points a game on average, helped by 18 points from the defense and special teams. The off-field optics have been as bad as the offense. Fire Brian has become a reoccurring chant at Kinnick Stadium and even made into t-shirts. The Hawkeyes are coming off a 12-10 home loss to Minnesota in which the offense gained only 127 yards, including 12 in the second half. And on Sunday, it was announced that oddmakers put the over-under points total for Saturday's game versus Northwestern at 29.5, the lowest known opener in college football history. That total has been increased to 31. 
This is all on the heels of last season's 251.6 yards per game on offense, which rated as the worst in Iowa football since 1978 and the lowest by any Power 5 team since Wake Forest in 2014. Take those numbers and add that Brian Ferentz is the oldest son of the Hawkeyes' 25th-year head coach, Kirk Ferentz, and the talking point of nepotism added fuel to the firestorm. Kirk Ferentz said clearly, we want more points and more yards. He said this after the October 21st defeat to Minnesota, despite the defense not allowing a touchdown. I'm not sitting here saying whatever we had was enough. It's not enough. We need to do better. The Iowa offense has taken a nosedive since starting 6 to nothing in the 2021 season. After beating fourth-ranked Penn State 23-20, the Hawkeyes have scored one or fewer touchdowns on offense in 18 of 29 games. They haven't gained 400 yards in any of their last 30 games. They have been held to 166 yards or fewer in total offense seven times in that span. Poor quarterback play, an inconsistent offensive line, and massive attrition at wide receiver have been a big part of that decline. But even with a big offseason acquisition at quarterback and Michigan transfer Cade McNamara, the offense struggled. And now with McNamara out for the year with a torn ACL, the offensive issues have gotten even worse with Deacon Hill at quarterback. In the immediate future, the Hawkeyes' depth chart Monday listed Hill as the starter for this Saturday's game at Wrigley Field, 2.30 p.m., um, showing on Peacock. Kirk Ferentz is scheduled to address the media at 1.45 p.m. on Tuesday. And I'm going to read a short part here on Iowa State Text Group Tuesday breaks down defining November, the text group. It's on the front page of the Des Moines Register sports section. I don't know how the Big 12 standings will shake out, but this is fact. Iowa State staying in first place will mean beating a ranked opponent for the first time since the Cyclones beat number 8 Oklahoma State 24 to 21 in 19 in 2021. That's just one result that will keep Matt Campbell's Iowa State 5341 Big 12 program alive in what's become an NCAA basketball tournament like survive and advance sprint to the finish. Number 23 Kansas at Jack Trice Stadium at 6 p.m. Saturday. Sixth-ranked Texas also in Ames on November 18. Just out of the rankings and under, underappreciated Kansas State in Manhattan on November 25. Throw in the Cyclones' November 11 game at BYU, and that's a foursome with a 24-11 cumulative record. The toughest stretch for anyone calling themselves a Big 12 title contender. Here's what's left for the other four teams at Intercollege Football's Week 10, 10 with 4-1 conference records. Oklahoma's 4-1-7-1 at Oklahoma State, home against West Virginia, and home against TCU. Oklahoma State, 4-1-6-6-2, home against number 11 Oklahoma at uh, UCF, then at Houston, home against BYU. Texas. 4171 home against Kansas State they're 62 at uh, at TCU 44 and at Iowa State 53 home against Texas Tech 35 Kansas State 4162 at number 6 Texas uh, uh, 71 home against Baylor 3 and 5 and then sure the Big 12 may finish like we thought it would with Texas and Oklahoma showing up on December 2 at Jerry World to see which SEC-bound team wins the conference championship. 
That's a nightmare Big 12 administrators probably don't want, but it's possible. Iowa State, uh, for Iowa State to be a part of maybe crashing the defectors' farewell tour after winning just one of nine conference games in 2022, question? Feels great, running back Cartevius Norton said after Saturday's victory at Baylor, especially after last year when there weren't a meaningful games in November. That's made this very special. Well, what does the Registers Iowa State Test Group say about all this? Won't read it all, but here's a couple. I wonder what that guy who embarrassed himself by saying Campbell is on the hot seat is feeling right now. The register, that's the text. The answer is the register correctly chose not to publish that video after the Ohio game. This isn't the first time publicity-seeking stuff has happened, but I now feel it's appropriate to make this point. Campbell ain't no on anyone's hot seat. Never has been, and I really doubt he ever will be while at Iowa State. He enters the Kansas game with a 51-45 overall coaching record at Iowa State. He's five wins shy of breaking Dan McCartney's 12-season toll of 95. And the last text is, will TJ Tampa play against Kansas? An NCAA rule books targeting section states that fouls in the first half result in disqualification for the remainder of the game. With 55 seconds remaining in the first half, the preseason Big 12 first-teamer was called for targeting against Baylor receiver uh, Keetron Jackson, Jr., and the fact that it happened in the first half, albeit late in the first half, meant only second-half ejection. If the targeting happened in the second half, he'd be ejected for the remainder of that game. Tampa is available for all 60 minutes against Kansas. So that is that. I'm going to send it over to uh, Lisa for Dear Abby, I think. Yes. The title for Dear Abby today is Family's Black Sheep Alone Again. Dear Abby, I've been having a hard time dealing with my family. We have never been close. My mother played favorites and never showed me any affection. My siblings followed suit, and I always felt like an outsider. My father was wonderful and loved me very much, for which I am forever grateful. Both my parents died last year. I was walking on the eggshells the entire time. My brothers and sisters seemed to think that I was now a member of the family. They included me in events and told me they loved me. I was so hopeful. After my mother's death, I was cut out of the family again. I'm no longer invited to family celebrations or holidays. I'm brokenhearted and lonely. I have no one left. Family is so important to me. I'm embarrassed to admit that I am now estranged from everyone. Can you help black sheep in Kentucky? Abby says, Dear Black Sheep, Unfortunately, your experience is not unique. I hear it more and more in one variation or another. It is now time for you to build a family of your own, comprised of friendships with people you can trust. Many people do this, and when they do, they find themselves happier and more rewarded than they felt with their relatives. As you do this, do not look back. Begin not by asking for friendship, but by being honest and befriending others. Look around and you will see them everywhere. There's no shame in reaching out, so please do not feel embarrassed about being a member of a very large club. Dear Abby, I'm a realtor and managing broker helping my fiance's son, Mark, buy a new home. We're set to close next month. Tonight, my fiancé, Simon, told me that I'm not to keep any of my commission, that Mark expects me to give it all back to him. 
Granted, I was planning to give Mark a token of appreciation, a few hundred dollars perhaps, but not my entire commission. I told Simon he must have misunderstood that this is my job, my work. No one gives anyone their entire paycheck, do they? I don't think there's any way Mark would expect 100% of my commission, but Simon says if I don't agree, there will be consequences. Our relationship is already strained, and I feel that this is not only over the top, but also completely disrespectful. I'm trying not to rock the boat with the holidays coming up. Please help me. On the spot in Illinois. Abby says, dear on the spot, sometimes it's better to confront a problem than to ignore it for fear of what you might find out. This is one of those times. Tell your fiance to explain exactly what he meant by consequences if you don't agree to his son's unreasonable demand. Listen carefully to what he has to say. If you give in to emotional blackmail this time, it's only a taste of what you will receive from him and his son in the future. If there is a wedding planned anytime soon, I urge you to slam on the brakes until this matter is ironed out to your satisfaction. And at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtime to some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m. It's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m. You'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m. It's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register at 8 You'll hear the midweek midweek shopping cart. 9 p.m., it's Time Magazine. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal, and we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Doug Kretzinger. My partner at the microphone has been Lisa Horsch. Earlier, you heard uh, Pat Steele and Deanna Snyder. You can listen to Irish programs on any computer or smart device at any time at the iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.